Now, as, as some of you guys know, some of you know better than others because you're the ones asking me, but every day I really do get to answer a lot of questions. People come to me with a lot of questions, and typically they're about God and faith, although there are about some other things too, but typically let's talk about the God and faith questions. And it's been a few years, and I can tell you now I've compiled a little bit of experience, and I can safely say that now by a wide, wide margin over the years, more than any other question, in fact, more than all the other questions combined, people have asked me this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, if there's a good God, do bad things happen? I mean, I hear this all the time, and we've probably all thought about it. And it's, interestingly, it's not just Jesus's people who ask me these questions. It's, it's all kinds of people. Maybe, maybe you've heard somebody argue against faith in God, against faith in Jesus by asking a version of this question. Maybe you've heard somebody argue, how can I believe in God when there's so much human tragedy in the world? Or why would a good God allow bad things to happen? Maybe you've wondered it yourself. The truth is, most people have. Most people have at least considered the question. But but here's something that's interesting as we kind of begin to dig into this. When we ask that question, isn't it the case that when we think about these bad things, we're usually thinking about the bad out there? And we rarely, if ever, think about the bad in here. Like, it's always somebody else's bad. Why do these bad things happen in the world? I'm fine, but why is, why is all this bad stuff going on out there? Did it just get hot in here? Yeah? <laughs> now, I'm going to keep going. Don't raise your hands here, okay? Don't raise your hands. But have you ever done anything bad in your life? Don't raise your hands. All right, second question. Don't raise your hands on this one either. Have you ever felt like you wanted to do something really bad. But the only reason you didn't do it is because you were afraid of getting caught. Or you were afraid if it was bad enough that you'd go to jail. Did you on some level know that you would have done it if you were positive you could have gotten away with it? Are you second-guessing your decision to come to church this morning? (laughs) Well, if it makes you feel any better... I am certainly guilty of all of those things. Absolutely. And I tell you this all the time. I get to stand on a stage that's, I don't know, 18 inches, two feet higher than the floor. But I don't belong up on a pedestal. Believe me. But isn't it intriguing that when people begin to consider the existence of a good God as it relates to evil, it's always the evil out there and not the evil in here, not the evil in our own hearts. Spend some time thinking about that one as we move on, because suffice it to say, there is no debate that evil out there and evil in here both exist. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, there's evil. Watch the news. Read the headlines. Scroll through any social media you like, and you will see plenty of evil. Well, the Gospels, and that's what we refer to the first four books of the New Testament as, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels actually help us with this dilemma because the Gospel writers either personally saw 
or new people who personally saw God in the flesh. And they saw God in the flesh coexisting and interacting with evil people. The Apostle John saw Jesus. He was one of the eyewitnesses. He saw Jesus, God in the flesh, coexist with evil people. And he saw that Jesus didn't prove that he was God by eliminating that evil and by eliminating those evil people. Instead, John saw Jesus do something entirely different. John observed that Jesus loved the people. Jesus loved John, and then Jesus began to eliminate the evil in John and in the other disciples. John saw God, and John saw evil, and John saw how God and evil coexisted in this world in a way that is nearly beyond our comprehension. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, I'm talking about this in order to introduce today's sign. Remember what we're doing here? We are in part six, which is the last part of our sermon series, Bystander, John and the Rabbi from Nazareth. And what we're doing in this sermon series, and if you've missed any of the messages, go onto our website, hammockstreetchurch.com, onto our YouTube channel, Hammock Street Church, and just go, or Facebook even, and find the sermons, and you can listen all the way. This is sermon number six in the six-part series. We're tracking along with John and his journey with Jesus. And as we've seen, John wrote his gospel not to just convey information. He wasn't just telling you things. But he wrote his gospel to help his audience in his day and in our day arrive at a conclusion about Jesus. Now, for that reason, John organized his gospel, his account of the life of Jesus, around things he called signs. He referred to as signs. Now, what is a sign? A sign is an unusual event that points to something. And throughout John's gospel, John made it clear that he didn't want his audience to focus on those unusual events because they were miraculous. He wanted his audience to focus on the unusual events because they were signs that pointed to the identity of and the truth about Jesus. That's why the signs are important, not because, wow, Jesus can do magic things, but because it points to something about Jesus. Well, today, we're here at the sixth sign in the story of Jesus. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us this morning again. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to study the Bible, to look at your word, to understand what it is that John saw, what it is that John was convinced of, and how that can impact our lives and draw us closer to you. So God, as we continue on this morning, we ask that you would keep our hearts and minds open to all that you have for us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the last few weeks, we've been journeying along with Jesus and the disciples. I just have a picture behind me. You don't have to be able to read the little words. But remember, up north, this is Israel or ancient Israel during the time of Jesus. Up north, we see the Galilee region. That's where Jesus was from. Then down at the bottom, we see Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. And we've noticed that the disciples and Jesus kept moving back and forth from Galilee in the north 
down to Jerusalem in the south and back again. We've talked about how they've jumped back and forth and back and forth. Remember, Jesus was from Galilee in the north. He was from that region up there. And the temple was in Jerusalem. And remember also, as we've seen, that Jesus was always better received in his home region. He was always better received up there than he was in Jerusalem. Whenever he and the disciples went to Jerusalem, there was problems because that's where the Jewish leadership was and that's where the Roman leadership was and it was a big issue. Well, last time we met, last week, we were looking at John 9 when Jesus was up or down south in Jerusalem. Well, just to kind of fill in the gaps in the next chapter, chapter 10, Jesus went into the temple and there he got into an argument with the temple leaders And they asked Jesus the question that they wanted to ask him for some time. In John 10, 24, they asked him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I already told you. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, right? The testimony that is giving facts that point to a truth. Jesus told them that he'd not only told them before, he'd shown them before, but they just wouldn't believe him. And that makes the leaders what we call willfully blind. They saw something, they just refused to believe it's true. It's, it's almost like when I, I see pictures of my sons, my sons are now grown, and I see their pictures, one of them's married, and I go, I don't believe it. I don't believe those little boys are grown men. I just don't believe. That's kind of like being willfully blind toward that, but on a smaller scale. Like the evidence is all there, but I refuse to see it. Well, that's what the leaders were doing. They were looking at Jesus. The evidence was all there, but they just didn't see it. Anyway, after this, Jesus left the temple area and went back to the place where John the Baptist was baptizing. Now, many people came to Jesus there, and many people there who came to Jesus believed in him. And then from there, we move on to today's text, which is found in John 11. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up. You can open a Bible app. You can look at the Bible on the screen, however you like to do it. But it's in John 11 that we're going to see the sixth sign. And the sixth sign that we're looking at might just be the most remarkable sign that we've seen yet. And the interesting thing about it is that It can be said that Jesus performed this sign in response to a situation that could have been totally avoided. Like, this was a situation that Jesus almost manufactured so he could show the sign. You'll see what I'm talking about. Jesus performed the sign in this chapter exactly the way that he needed to perform it, though, in order to make sure that there would be absolutely no doubt that Jesus was who Jesus said he was in a way that even those who insisted on being willfully blind simply couldn't ignore. All right, so here's what went down. We're going to read through a lot of scripture today. It'll all be on the screen for you. We go to John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister, Martha. Okay, Bethany. Bethany was located about a day and a half walk from Jerusalem. Remember, they had to walk everywhere. Uber had not yet been invented. It was a place where Jesus's friends, Mary, and her sister Martha lived. You've heard of them. So we move on now to verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, and they said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Take a second and consider this. Mary and Martha 
sent a messenger. They didn't text. They didn't email. They sent a messenger. And the message took about a day and a half to get from them to Jesus. And the messenger then finds Jesus, finds the lads together with him, and tells Jesus, Mary and Martha sent me with this message, the one you love is sick. Now, it's really cool when you think about it. Just with that little bit of information, Jesus knew exactly who the messenger was talking about. He's talking about Lazarus. That means that Lazarus must have been a really good friend of Jesus. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Now, you've probably heard the story of Lazarus before, but have you ever considered the timeline? Put these timelines, put this timeline together. It's interesting. It took a day and a half for the messenger to get to Jesus. So that probably means that by the time Jesus arrived back there, Lazarus would have been already dead. This is a long time. But notwithstanding, Jesus continues. He says, not going to end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. If you hadn't heard this story already, you'd go, wait, what? Lazarus is dead for God's glory? That doesn't make sense. My, my preaching teacher, a guy named Steve Brown, is fond of saying, when a pagan gets cancer, a believer gets cancer, so the world can know the difference. Is this an example of what Steve is talking about? You see, what we can see right here at the outset is from the looks of it, Jesus must believe that bad things can happen to good people. And I want to note here that there is another discussion to be had about whether the Bible says there are any good people at all, but I'm not going to talk about that today. That's a discussion for another time. Hint, no. But anyway, (laughs) but not only does the fact that Jesus said that show that bad things can happen to good people, it also shows that the fact that bad things can happen to good people does not disprove God's existence. And in fact, it's the opposite. Somehow it proves God's existence. Was Jesus saying that this sickness was somehow for the glory of God? Sure looks like that's what he's saying. But John was just getting started. Now, before we move on, note that Jesus said the words, so that. So that God's son. So that Jesus might be glorified through it. In other words, this particular sickness, which did not result from something evil that Lazarus did, but resulted from something that naturally happened, something that naturally happens to people, those things can point to the goodness of God. This sickness, this evil thing, and I think we'd all agree that sickness is an evil thing, this evil thing that naturally occurred could somehow be a sign of God's goodness. How? All right, let's keep going. Jesus left this sickness, this evil thing that happened to Lazarus then, unattended, on purpose, because Jesus had a purpose in it. In this story, for his disciples and also for us, Jesus introduced us to a very counterintuitive concept. The concept is there can actually be sickness for the glory of God. Now, let's keep going to see if we can figure out what happened here. So, John continues in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, 
Love Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why did John say this here? Well, he said it here because when we read the previous verses, our first thought has to be, doesn't look like he loved anybody, does it? Like, Lazarus is sick. Okay, whatever. What are we doing for lunch? I mean, Jesus seems pretty nonchalant about his beloved friend. This is the guy you love? He seemed pretty nonchalant about his sickness, didn't he? But John doesn't want us to stop reading there. And that's why he said this here. John knew very well that Jesus' actions, or more accurately, Jesus' inaction in this situation, didn't look all that loving in the moment. He knew that. And therein lies another lesson for us. Sometimes in our own lives, it doesn't look very much like Jesus loves us, does it? That's why Jesus gave us this sign, because Jesus was up to something. All right, moving on, verse 6. So when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, what did he do? He didn't do anything. He stayed where he was two more days. Now think about it. We already saw how Jesus immediately healed two strangers. We talked about those in the other signs. But then a beloved friend, somebody he actually knew personally, someone he loved personally, when he needed healing, Jesus waited. All right? giving him the benefit of the doubt. We know he, <clears throat> he was up to something. So two days later, two days later, then Jesus says to the boys, all right, now let's go back to Judea. Let's go to Bethany. Now, do you remember what happened the last time they were in that region? The last time they were in that region, they were nearly killed. This is so confusing to the disciples Lazarus, his, Jesus' buddy, is dead and dying. We're dying and dead. Jesus says, let's wait. Then Jesus says, let's go back to that dangerous place. How do I know that? Because they said this in verse 8. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. That means they tried to kill you with rocks. And yet, you're going back? Now, when you read this question, obviously, it's a loaded question. The disciples' real question was, uh, boss, <laughs> um, did you forget? The last time we were there, they tried to kill you, and now you want us to go back, and now you want us to join you. Like, think about that. Let's go, guys. Really? He's already dead, and we almost died there, and you want us to go? And as they're trying to talk Jesus out of making this journey, Jesus kind of changes the subject. Jesus did that a lot. He changed the subject a lot. And then he says this in verse 9. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? And they all went, huh? What? What What does this have to do with Lazarus and and two days and traveling? And we read the whole verse. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And although the disciples likely did not understand what Jesus was talking about when he said it, before too long, his point became clear. Jesus was saying to them, gentlemen, you need to follow the light of the world while the light of the world is still in the world. He said something similar in the verses we looked at last week. And he was saying to them, and he's also saying to us, if you don't follow the light of the world, you'll stumble around in darkness. You'll stumble around in in a world devoid of meaning and purpose and hope. 
That's why you have to find and follow the light of the world. You'll stumble around in darkness, if not trying to make sense out of a world that lacks sense. You'll stumble around in darkness, trying to make sense of good and evil. And Jesus was saying that apart from the author of life, you'll never understand life. Jesus was saying to his apostles, and Jesus is saying to us, follow me because I am the light of the world. And if you don't follow me, everything will always seem meaningless. And you'll stumble around in the darkness trying to piece things together, but you'll never be able to piece them together. All right, so that's our little interlude, okay? Then we move on to verse 11. After he said this, okay, so that was a little commercial break. Then he comes back. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Okay? I'm going to Judea. Who's with me? And here we get a narrator's voiceover. But nobody was with him, right? Because next the disciples started to try to convince Jesus he didn't need to go after all. Verse 12, Lord, let's let him sleep. If he sleeps, he'll get better. That's what they said. Hey, Jesus, people always feel better after they sleep, don't they? Shouldn't we just let them sleep it off? Like, it's very clear they did not want to go. And as John was writing this, remember when John wrote this, this was way after it happened, decades after it happened. John was able to explain at that point, because he had some perspective, he was able to explain how the disciples had missed the point. See, the disciples thought Jesus was speaking literally. He said, well, Lazarus, he's not sick. He's just taking a nap. So Jesus had to speak to them more plainly. He kind of knocks on their forehead and says, guys, Lazarus is dead. Okay? Trying to give you the metaphor of sleep. You guys didn't get it. He's dead. And they must have been so confused because they're like, wait, wait, didn't you you just a few minutes ago tell us that Lazarus wouldn't die? And now you're saying he's dead. And what came next must, must have been terrible for Mary and Martha, and probably for Lazarus, too. It's terrible for all of them, but it's wonderful for us, because watch what happens here. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Think how terrible that is. Mary and Martha watching their brother die, horrible. Jesus says, I'm glad I didn't have to see it. Right? Because watching someone you love die is one of the worst things in the world. If you've you've been there, you know. If you haven't been there, you're afraid of it. Nobody wants to go through that, ever. And Jesus was glad that his disciples didn't have to go through it. He was glad that he didn't have to watch Lazarus die or be there while the sisters had to watch their brother die. But Jesus is about to change the playbook. And this is what's so cool. For the sake of everyone, for that, from that moment on, things changed. Anyone who'd be faced with finding themselves in that horrible, hopeless situation was about to learn something. Jesus was about to deliver something that absolutely no one expected in that situation. He was about to deliver to them hope. The light of the world had come to shine a light on one of the dilemmas that mankind has wrestled with for thousands of years. How do we reconcile the idea of a good God in an evil world? How do we reconcile the idea of a good God in a world that doesn't give us the things that we want? 
Jesus said, I'm glad you weren't there, but let's go to him. Now, what happens next is kind of funny, actually. And, and when you read the Bible, it's, it's important to read it thinking that these are written by people and not by theologians. It's just regular people, and so they do regular people things, and sometimes those regular people things are pretty funny. The disciples didn't want to make the trip, and so Thomas, remember old doubting Thomas, he interjected a pretty great line in response to Jesus' announcement that we're going to go anyway. So here's what Thomas said. This is a good one, 11:16. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, well, let us also go so we can die with him. Do you feel the sarcasm in that statement? Lazarus is dead. Come on, guys, let's go. Thomas is like, all right, whatever. We'll die with him, whatever. Lazarus is dead. Jesus is going to be dead. We might as well be dead too. Okay, so the scene moves on from here to Bethany. Now, back in Bethany, they hadn't heard anything from Jesus since they'd sent their messenger and Lazarus had died. So I'm guessing they waited a while for Jesus to arrive. I mean, they probably like, all right, you know, of course he's going to come. He loves Lazarus, so let's hang out. Don't, don't do the funeral yet. I'm sure he'll get here. I mean, if you've, if you've ever been in that situation, you wait for people to come. But Jewish law said that they had to get Lazarus into the tomb. Interestingly, under Jewish law, you may have heard this before, a person needs to be buried on the same day that the person dies, but there are exceptions to the rule. And the exceptions are if a family's waiting for other family members to attend, they can wait a few days. But in no case can they wait longer than three days. Well, we're already way past that. Jesus didn't get there before three days. So Jesus not only missed Lazarus' death, but he missed his embalming and he missed his entombment. He missed the funeral. And so John tells us this. In John eleven seventeen, on his arrival, when Jesus got there, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. And when she got to Jesus, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I hope you can feel that there's pain in her voice. Lord, you were late. If you'd been here, he'd still be alive. I mean, that's an accusation, straight up. By the way, that also gives us permission to feel the way that people feel when we've prayed so hard for a miracle and our loved one dies anyway, and we're disappointed. That means we can say, God, why didn't you fix it? It's okay to say that. God is okay If you pray that, God totally gets it. Isn't it good to know that there's nothing wrong with your faith when you're upset because something doesn't go your way? Bad things happen to Jesus' people all the time. Jesus wanted us to know this. But, and this is important to see, Martha didn't lose her faith. Because look what she says next. But I know, there's the but, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus probably smiled at her. And he probably put his hand on her shoulder. And maybe he assured her. But then he assured her, he said, your brother will rise again. Now it's interesting how Martha responded to this. She assumed that when Jesus said, your brother will rise again, that Jesus was speaking theologically. He was speaking almost metaphorically. 
So she gave a theological response in return. Martha said, oh, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day, right? I was paying attention in theology class, right? (laughs) This this actually kind of coincides with the situation when a well-meaning Christian friend tries to comfort another friend in the throes of grief by randomly quoting scripture at them, right? Well, you know, God works all things together, you know. The Lord knows what he's doing, yeah. You know those scripture quotes when someone dies and you think you're helping them out? You want a little life hack here? Don't do that. Do not do that. It's not the time. It's not the place. The time and the place for a theological understanding of the end of life is not right when somebody's right smack in the middle of the grief, okay? Don't do that. And at that moment, Martha wasn't thinking about the last day. I mean, she said it, but that's not what she was thinking about. She wanted Jesus to get there to save her brother now or before the last day. And that's what Jesus is all about. And Jesus, what comes next, we get to see the importance of this sign. Jesus looked at her and as if to say, Martha, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not here to give you a theological lesson. I'm here to bring you ultimate hope. And here's what Jesus said to her in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is like, Martha, I'm not talking about resurrection in the last day. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And I'm right here in front of you, Martha. I am the light that has come into the world. I am the hope of the world. I am the light of the world that brings light into every dark situation. I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus continued, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now, this is a bit confusing. Again, Martha's mourning the loss of her brother. It's fresh. It's confusing for Martha. It's confusing for us too. And Jesus told her, Lazarus wouldn't die, but then Lazarus died. And here he's telling Martha that she would die, but that she wouldn't die. You should be confused. That's confusing. But Jesus here was just introducing her to the concept that death wasn't an end. Rather, it was a transition. Jesus continued. And again, I think he probably looked at her and smiled lovingly. And seeing her sorrow and confusion, he looked at her, his close, close friend, and he said to her, do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? And in that moment, it must have been so hard for for Martha to truly believe. And in that moment, it is very hard for all of us as believers to believe. But she found at least that little mustard seed-sized piece of faith and belief. And she said, yes, Lord, I believe implied there was, yes, Lord, I don't completely understand. I don't know how all this is going to work out. I don't get why you showed up so late, but I believe. I don't understand everything, but I believe. And then she told Jesus the one thing that she was certain of. Here's what she said. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. I believe that in some way that I don't yet understand, I know that you're the light of the world who's come into the world. And from there, Martha went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here. Jesus is here. And he's asking for you. 
Now, John proceeds from here to give us a very detailed account of Jesus and Mary's interaction, which is quite similar to the interaction he just had with Martha. I'm not going to read that for you, but just remember, this is a real story with real details. Jesus saw how deeply sorrowful Mary was as well, and Jesus asked her, now he's talking to Mary, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. So they went to Lazarus' tomb, and when Jesus arrived at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus stepped into this very human moment of the situation. Jesus stepped into this moment with all of its grief and all of the caring and all of the emotion. And even though Jesus knew exactly what he was about to do next, the love for and the grief over his friend Lazarus overwhelmed the very human Jesus. And we get to the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. He cried. He knew what he was going to do next, but he cried because his friend had died. This is the perfect picture of God's empathy. So much so that years later, when the apostle Peter was writing, he was able to say with confidence, remember, Peter was there watching. And Peter was able to say with confidence to anyone who was grieving, anyone who was in need of their loving father, that we could cast all of our anxiety on him because he cares for us. Peter knew it was okay to look to Jesus to take care of all of our anxieties and all of our fears and all of our unanswered prayers and all of our disappointments. It was okay to cast them all on Jesus because Jesus cares for us. Peter knew because he saw it. Peter knew because he watched as Jesus wept for his beloved friend Lazarus. Though we may not always feel it and we may not always see it, but Jesus cares for us too. Next verse, John eleven thirty six. Then the Jews who had come from Jerusalem to comfort Mary and Martha said, see how he loved him, see how Jesus loved Lazarus. But that old human doubt still remained then why didn't he do anything? Maybe, maybe he's just incapable of doing anything at all here. But as it so happened, Jesus could have done something. He just didn't do something. And maybe he didn't for a higher purpose. Maybe he didn't for our sake. You see, Jesus chose to do something else. And it was in that next moment that Jesus took all of the sorrow and grief and fear and worry and uncertainty of Mary and Martha into this, in this story, and he channeled it into that one astounding, magnificent moment so that future generations, so that we could live our lives, no matter what the circumstances, with hope and with joy. So watch this. This is really cool. Verse 39, or verse 37. Okay? Oh, I forgot to read this to you. People said he could have done it, but why didn't he do it? All right, so you got that. Then Jesus says, he moves to the cave and says, take away the stone. What a dramatic scene this must have been, right? Take away the stone. And they don't say it in the Bible, but, but you got to imagine, people are watching. There's a big crowd here. Everybody knows Lazarus has been in there for four days, okay? And Jesus says, take away the stone. And you got to imagine everybody went, <gasps> mumble, mumble, mumble. And then Martha speaks up. She says, Lord, I don't think that's such a good idea. They already told Jesus, you're too late. You are too late by days, not by minutes, by days. 
These people knew what happens to a dead body that had been lying around for days. They didn't embalm like we embalm. Martha continued. She says, by this time, it's going to stink. There's a bad odor. He's been in there four days. What a great story. Isn't this a great story? And Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus says, if you want to see the glory of God, trust me. Trust me. So they took away the stone. All right, take a second and feel the tension. Stones rolling away. Big noisy stone, right? You can almost hear. You can almost feel the entire crowd going. Maybe they're putting their face in their shirts. They don't smell it. Maybe they're, I know it's going to smell. What are we going to see? Someone cover the kid's eyes. Then Jesus looked up. Jesus is about to pray pray to God the Father. Can you feel the tension? Here's what he says. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And in this moment, everything becomes crystal clear. The question that needed to be answered was not the question of why bad things happen to good people. But the question that needed to be answered was this. Who is Jesus? Because if Jesus is who he says he is, all of our other questions are answered in him. If Jesus is who he said he is, all of our worldly issues become but necessary steps in our journey to knowing him better and being connected to him forever. That's what becomes important. And when Jesus finished his prayer, Jesus calls in a loud voice. Isn't this dramatic? Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. John was there. John witnessed the whole thing. And John told us how. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth was around his face. Are you picturing a mummy? Yes. And look at the detail of the story. And Jesus says, take off the grave clothes. Take those strips off. Take off that cloth. Let him go. I'm guessing the silence was deafening. Lazarus was alive after four days in the tomb. And then John gives us Kind of an unnecessary epilogue to the story. Here's what he says. Therefore, therefore, they saw a dead guy get up and walk out of a tomb. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. You think? That's pretty dang convincing evidence, isn't it? Many who had come saw and believed. You see... John was not asking us to have faith in Jesus just because, just because somebody told you so. John wanted us to have faith in Jesus because John was a trustworthy witness who testified as to the truth of all that Jesus did, who testified as to the truth of who Jesus is so that we could arrive at the same conclusion he arrived at. Not simply about what Jesus did, but about who Jesus is. Now listen. Empirically speaking, Christianity could not have grown to the numbers that it had reached by the third century 
if there had not been so many followers there who actually saw, so many followers there towards the end of Jesus' life. And those followers embraced Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah, because of what they saw. Remember, the Bible would not be canonized, would not be put into a book for another few hundred years. John made it clear that seeing led to believing, that led to trusting. Seeing led to believing that Jesus was who Jesus claimed to be so that people could ultimately place their faith and trust in him. And John didn't just want us to know the story. John didn't just want us to know what he said he saw and just believe what he saw had happened. John wanted us to trust in what he saw so that we would ultimately place our personal faith in Jesus and place our personal faith in who Jesus claimed to be because of what he did on planet Earth. The light of the world had come into the world for the benefit of the world. This was such indisputable evidence. It turns out that those who were willfully blind decided they had to do something about it. They had to step in and do something. And so here's what they said. We're getting to the end of this. The chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Jesus had just done something extraordinary. And his enemies gathered and said, we got to put an end to this. So here's what they said. If we let him go on, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. If we let this go on, we're going to lose our jobs. We're going to lose our influence. We're going to lose everything. They decided to have Jesus arrested and executed. And by the way, to have Lazarus, the newly resurrected Lazarus, executed as well, which we'll see in the next chapters of John if you keep reading. But just think about their arrogance if we let, if we let things go on like this. See, now, when John was writing this, remember, decades later, he knew how ridiculous that was. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, as if they could have stopped him. But they had no idea that over 2,000 years later, more than one-third of the world's population would believe in him. One-third of the world's population, which is a lot larger than it was back then. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they'll take away our temple and our nation. They thought they had so much to lose. They had no idea what they had to gain. The presence of evil in the world does not negate the presence of our God in the world. God had come to dwell alongside evil men and evil women. And the light was so bright, and some were attracted to his light, and some were repelled by it. Remember, John said this earlier, light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. But God didn't eliminate the evil. God took that evil and put that evil on the shoulders of his son so that if you are one of his people, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. God so loved the world. God so loved the evil people in this world that God sent his perfect son to be the light of the world. Now, John would say, look, I'm nobody special. I'm just a bystander. But I know that you have to hear my story. Because if you saw what I saw and you heard what I heard, you'd believe what I believe. And John would have said when I saw the final sign, the seventh sign, when Jesus walked out of that tomb, and then 40 days later, before hundreds of witnesses went up, ascended to heaven, I knew that there should never be 
any more doubt that Jesus was God incarnate, God in a body, the light of the world in the world for God's purposes. And that's why I wrote this gospel, so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. And as we wrap up this series, if understanding that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, If understanding that, you now see what John saw and believe what John believed, that Jesus is that Savior. If you'll turn from the way that you were and accepting Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, if doing that, you'll commit your life to him. If you'll follow him as your Lord and your leader, you will be saved from an eternity separated from God and saved to an eternity connected to our Heavenly Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And when God's gift of eternal life belongs to you, hang on to your hats and watch what God will do in and through your life for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for such a great sign. Thank you for allowing us to peek into this window opened for us by John 2,000 years ago. Thank you for showing us beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus, God the Son, is indeed the light of the world, that he paid for our sins, that he came back from the dead so that we could be together connected with you forever. God, we give you our lives. We devote our lives to you. God, we just want you to work through us in a magnificent way. God, we can't wait to see what you'll do with us from today on. We thank you, we love you, God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.